Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I have hosted five seasons of a podcast. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I also have hosted five seasons of a podcast. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Monday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we will be discussing our favorite beers of of the season while drinking our favorite beers of all time. I'm having Dragon's Milk Stout. And I'm drinking 1554. Favorite beer of all time. This is my this is my 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 standing favorite, my everyday favorite, perhaps. Perhaps. Oh, I sh- maybe that's probably a better a better descriptor. My go-to, our standard go-tos. And callbacks to episodes one and two for those of you who've been listening from the beginning. I can't bless your heart yeah, if you are right. Yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine anyone is. But good for you. I'm not saying we're amazing now, but I'm saying we're better now than we were then. Agreed. Uh, So what are we doing today, Mr. Ralph? I didn't cue a paper this month because it is our tradition now to spend the last episode of every season, which is the end of our summers, uh, the end of summer vacation for many of you, uh, to sort of downshift a little bit and reflect on our reading and our practice and the time we've spent together over the last year. So instead of always progressing with new material, we take one episode a year to reflect and process and plan for the future. And this is that episode. Yeah, it's really fun. I look forward to it. And uh, it helps me in two ways. It helps me, of course, review some of the things that I thought were important from the papers that we read, especially as I begin to transition into the fall and consider how will my practice change in light of things that I've learned this past year. Uh, and so I really, really like this, uh, this time and this, this tradition. So we're going to go back to our three-section format for this episode, even though we've dropped our third segment most months, uh, because we like to reflect in several domains of our lives. So this first segment, we're going to reflect on noteworthy segments or the noteworthy research and conversations that we've had over the past year. So our prompt question that has led to the notes you and I have written is specifically, what were the most noteworthy papers you read this year and why? And I use the word noteworthy on purpose because papers can be noteworthy for any variety of reasons. And we'll probably tell you how each one was noteworthy as we go. Usually when I go through this um, process and I'm, uh, you know, it's 11 episodes, well, 12 episodes a season, 11 of them with new content. That's with two new articles each episode, that's 22 articles to consider. I usually have, like, the top two are usually pretty obvious. Like, oh yeah, that's a standout article that I really enjoyed reading and I'm going to use it. And that's a standout article that has affected me and shifted me. Then I kind of have to decide what my third is. Uh, And it's actually usually pretty easy for me to do. That was not the case this year because I when I'm reviewing and I'm going back, there are so many articles that I think that were important and influential to practice that this was amongst, I think, the best year of practical publications we have ever done. I had to 
like I've got my top three. I've got my honorable mention. And then I have eight more that I think are worth being discussed. So 12 of the 11 were memorable and impacting to me as a practitioner. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did three at an honorable mention. Also, just mirroring the structure that we took last year. For me, uh, I didn't have I didn't have as many that resonated and stood out with me across our whole library. And that's probably a consequence of just my increasing distance from having been in the classroom. And so there were some of those really classroom centric papers that I think are useful and important, but they didn't shake my practice in the same way because I don't have that practice at this moment. But the top several papers. As I was drafting my my podium, all of them spent time at number one. As I was trying to decide which one was going to be number one, and so the so my top several were also all of them were resonant. All of them I want to I want to celebrate. Um, and even though they are in a podium structure now, uh, they are all I thought really high quality. So my honorable mention is love in the K twelve classroom: a critical comparison of white teacher saviorism and love as the practice of freedom. That was a love practice praxis article. Uh, episode 60. That one is an honorable mention because I don't know how globally relevant it's going to be to an individual teacher. I don't know. Like it, it, it didn't, it wasn't about like, here are pedagogical techniques that you can directly use in your classroom. It was very philosophical and it was very uh, uh, introspective and it asked teachers to reflect on the, their choices and the motivation of their choices. But it was about recognizing our appropriate role as a caregiver in a teacher while respecting the boundaries of that role, both internally and systemically, this is that is a terrible way to describe this paper, uh, but that is what it was about. <laughs> uh, so let me try again. The idea that teachers are saints willing to sacrifice themselves for their students is wrong in at least two ways. One, it reinforces an egotistical element of classroom power dynamic for the teacher, as in if anything good happens in the classroom, it's because the teacher made it happen. And it allows society to give permission to take advantage of teachers who really care about their students. So we need to critically look at that uh, narrative about who teachers are in classrooms and why they're doing what they're doing. That essay stands out in our library of articles because it's it was a medium post uh, as opposed to most of the rest of our material was peer-reviewed literature, but it was definitely a scholarly piece. It was definitely critical. It was a critical piece uh, pointing out some of the racialized dynamics and some of the gendered dynamics of how that sort of martyrdom story gets used, and I'm even going to say weaponized in the U.S. in particular, and I'm going to say that that is a heightened problem now, even compared to uh, recent history. And so she, I really appreciated the way that the author, Shauna Coppola, deconstructed some of the nuance in how that plays out to simultaneously respect and professionalize teachers, while also pointing out some of the ways that this can reinforce problematic and sometimes racist and sometimes misogynist dynamics in classrooms. 
Uh, and she held all those things in tension and very explicitly held those things in her writing as a model for how I could think about those things in my role in education also. So uh, I really appreciated it because it, it put me in a valuable place where I was able to struggle in a productive way. And I think that we were really explicit on tape during that episode saying, just go read it because it's not very long. And I'm going to reiterate that now. If you're curious what this essay was, go read it. Uh, and because this is a, a year in review, we will also drop all of the fresh links to the episodes in the papers in this particular episode's notes so you don't have to go finding everything. Let's move on to my honorable mention uh, because this one was... Of my podium of papers, I think that this was as excellent of a paper as any of the others, and I slotted it for honorable mention only because it was reinforcing things I already believed, and so didn't disrupt my practice quite as much, and so this is very much about me. And so my honorable mention is from episode 62. Is it rewarding cognitive effort increases the intrinsic value of mental sure. labor? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's on my bonus list, so I'm glad you got it. Thanks. I didn't realize until we did that segment how much I was relying on my own intuition for that belief. I just, I think we should talk about effort. I think that folks who are doing hard work are the ones I want to acknowledge and the ones whose work I want to celebrate. And I want to um, use my standing in the classroom to elevate and increase their visibility as a model for everybody from moment to moment. And then this paper comes along and shows the the impact that that can have to some of the measurable outcomes coming out of the classroom. I'm like, oh, that's great. That's something I already want to do. And it turns out that that's something that has other positive benefits in the classroom in addition to just being something that I want to be doing. And so uh, yeah, uh, we didn't have an explicit growth mindset article this season, but if we did, it, like the closest one we had is this one because it's about uh, improving through effort. And it also helps, you know, that we many teachers have this and, and parents and and employers have this idea that, you know, about work ethic that we want our our we want our students, our children, our employees to be intrinsically motivated. And it turns out you can build their ability to be intrinsically motivated by extrinsically acknowledging or rewarding the behaviors we want them to use when they're intrinsically motivated. So if we teach our kids these cognitive skills and reward them when they're working toward them, then when they have decided they want to do something, those skills will already be there and they'll be able to make progress on that thing that they have internalized because they have put in that work. So uh, that paper, because if I recall, they were they were literally paid to start thinking about problems. Like, and, and it wasn't it wasn't like a you know, no one's retiring with this. It was it was basically a pittance, but the external reward did not damage these people. And I think that that allows us to re-examine maybe some big black lines that uh, teachers had drawn in their classroom. So if you're someone who is considering whether or not you'll have an external reward structure or how to give feedback or how to, how to uh, acknowledge the, the growth of students in your classroom, uh, take a look at, at um, episode 62, which can help you decide when to keep that big black line and when to maybe cross it. Uh, 
Uh, so let's move on to the podium. Uh, so my my number three paper uh, is another one that was satisfying because it reinforced some things that I had intuitively already established or believed in in my work. Uh, but again, put some empirical data around its importance. And this one ranked higher than my last paper because the conversation that you and I had did highlight some ways that I had not implemented this in my practice so that if and when I have an opportunity to be leading a classroom again, I can be more intentional and more thorough about integrating it. And so I'm choosing the first paper from episode 61, which is called Pretesting versus Post-Testing, Comparing the Pedagogical Benefits of Errorful Generation and Retrieval Practice. And this one shows up not the least of which because I love the phrase errorful generation and I am so excited to use that in regular conversation. Uh, it's linked to retrieval practice, which is something you and I both love and I think has even shown up on past podiums from past seasons. And so the ability to continue to refine the way that I approach facilitating retrieval practice is really satisfying. And in particular, using it in a way that has pretty dramatic impacts because I don't love doing pretests, like just from a from a procedural standpoint. I don't like to do it, but the opportunity to really facilitate more compelling learning and stronger academic outcomes was a big piece of what they found in their study. So I'm like, holy cats, I can do a thing that's consistent with what I love and really move the needle on learning for students in the classroom. Yes, please. You scooped me. That was my number two. That was my silver. And I've been thinking about that paper a lot. I, From time to time, we talk about being an agile instructor, being a dexterous instructor, being a responsive teacher. And uh, in some ways I am, and in some ways I'm maybe less than is ideal. And when I'm inspired to make a change, I say, is this something I'm going to implement immediately? Or is this something that I'm going to put on the back burner and start next year? And reading this paper, this was a kind of a systemic change in my practice. So I read it, I flagged it, I put it on the back burner, and I'm really excited this August to get back in the school year and write pretests for all my units. This is this paper is going to change my practice, and it's going to change my practice this year, this fall, and I'm excited about about the possibilities. I'm I'm excited about um giving the kids this pretest with these sort of open-ended questions and saying you must provide an answer and they'll tell me we don't know and i and i will say scientists don't know either they make a guess first and then they try to figure it out around those guesses and we're going to do the same thing so make make it up make up an answer that's what you need to do on this pretest uh and i'm excited about it's reinvigorated how I view my units. Uh, and I haven't even, I haven't even implemented it yet. I'm just looking forward to it. And so I'm, yeah. <coughs> so I, I gave this my second place spot because I know this is going to directly change my pedagogy. Uh, and, and it's, it's not competing with my practice of, of, um, heavy, uh, retrieval practice, it is reinforcing and bolstering my practice of heavy retrieval practice. Uh, so I am super excited about it. The, the power of pretesting 
if you are interested in in reinforcing this practice or learning more about it this is episode 61 and uh i i'm excited about it so one thing that's interesting that we certainly didn't talk about at the time but i'm realizing now in this exercise of reflection is i wonder how pre-testing and looking at and considering pre-test or like pre-learning information overlaps with the importance of an evaluative mindset because you're going to have things you don't know come up or be discussed or be considered and presumably without without um, like explicit interrogation, at least not from you. And so I'm wondering, like, I assume they're going to be mutually contributory, right? I assume that I don't know, here are some things I think, and then evaluate what's my confidence level, why am I thinking these, returning to them and remodeling them is going to help uh, reinforce the practice of examining your own belief structures. And so uh, I got to believe there's a lot of explicit overlap. Maybe Dr. Salovich can can hop back on here in another year or two and tell us all about how these two things talk to one another. It's very interesting that you say that because I'm going to use that as a transition to my number three, which is evaluative mindsets can protect against the influence of false information. So did did you guess that or were you just off the cuffing it? Yeah, no, that is my number three. So, uh, yeah, I, I think these are three and two in my podium for a reason. And I think it's that reason. Um, evaluative mindsets can protect against the influence of false information. You know, if you're, if, if you are a longtime listener to the show or even maybe just a, more than one episode listener of the show. You probably know that I have a sub theme that uh, I hate smartphones, I hate social media, and I just think everything is the worst because I am a grumpy old man. Uh, but this, uh, I, this, what I call the misinformation age that we live in now, uh, has impacts. The spread of false information changes individuals and can change societies, and we can see it doing so. So this is not a minor just classroom issue. This is a human, like, existential species level issue. Um, and so evaluative mindsets is interesting because that is something within the influence of a classroom teacher. So classroom teachers have uh, direct influence on something that is a human existence level experience. So evaluative mindsets can protect against the influence of false information. And we have the power to promote and develop evaluative mindsets in our students. That one has shaped the way that I think about how I personally move through the world. And in particular, this is actually something that overlaps my role as a parent the most, uh, because what I had done prior to that paper is when my small children ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, I work really hard to do a think aloud to, to like just narrate for them my, how I'm processing their question. And so it usually comes in three pieces. I'll say, um, that's an interesting question. And here's how I think it connects to, you know, what our previous conversation or the things that I know, I will tell them that I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question and why I don't know the answer to that question. But then my third phase is usually to give them my best guess. I say, I don't know the answer. Here's my guess. Here's what I would, here's what I would predict just here in this moment as a part of like, 
I don't know, pre-testing and errorful generation perhaps is the charitable <laughs> interpretation. Uh, but it's given me pause. In fact, this happened yesterday uh, where I went through that whole cycle. And then I, the guess came out of my mouth and I immediately thought about our conversation with Dr. Salovich and was like, huh, am I priming them to have a harder time remodeling this information because I'm giving this, this guess that I don't know about. Uh, and that's interesting. Yes. I certainly am. So the, but that's not the only thing at play here. Right. So like, I'm also modeling how we make predictions about the world. So there, I suspect will be times that it is acceptable or at least tolerable that I'm going to set them up for a misconception on the subject in order to better model for them, the cognitive behavior that I'm engaging in to help them understand how to think about and make guesses and do their own personal pretesting. And there, there will be times when that is not tolerable and I don't want to do that. And uh, I had done before this paper, I had lived in that world ignorantly and in an unexamined fashion. And so now I don't, I don't know how I will proceed, but I do appreciate that I am able to think about it with intention. So my last two papers, and I'm going to start with paper number two, really boiled down to my just estimate of how often do I talk about this thing or how often do I invoke it in conversation about policymaking or even just in my internal monologue? Am I thinking about this subject? And so my rough estimate of how often I reference them, like the citation rate just in my lived experience was my was the way that I sequenced these. And so my number two uh, actually comes from fairly early in the season. It is from episode 055. Uh, high school students' feelings, discoveries from a large national survey and an experience sampling study. And this one is really the one that described current practices around universal screening for student mental health and well-being. And that has really impacted my practice because it has equipped me to much more precisely discuss the current state of student mental health across the nation and our programmatic needs from a policymaking and systemic education standpoint. I don't have to be guessing and I don't have to be ex and I don't have to be extrapolating from only my bubble of the world, but this has equipped me to say, here's what's going on at the larger scale. Here's how we know. And here's what I think we should do about it, which I think is a much more professional way to approach policymaking and advocacy. And that's great. And the fact that we've got the podcast episode already and we've got the paper link easily accessible so I can easily share it with anybody who may have an interest in this kind of descriptive work is has been really valuable to the way that I move through policymaking and policy discussion spaces. This was one of my fierce competitors. Uh, definitely noteworthy. It didn't podium for me, but it uh, it did shift me a little bit in the sense that as a nation, we know that our students have, especially our high school students, but we know that our students have mental health challenges and I felt a sense of dissatisfaction about how my district was going about addressing those uh, mental health needs. And then when I read this paper, I realized that actually my district is kind of a pioneer in addressing these. And I can be critical of what they're doing and, and point to ways that I would rather have it be done, but that doesn't mean we're, we're in uh, 
that doesn't mean we're in a terrible place. In fact, uh, my district is asking our students, how do they feel? And that basic number one step isn't done systemically. It's not the status quo. So we have professional uh, mental health, we have mental health professionals employed directly serving our students in our schools. And those resources aren't ubiquitously available either. So this paper helped me realize that my, my anger, my dissatisfaction is about a pioneer cutting edge frontier that we as a nation are exploring. Uh, so it helped me recenter appropriate areas of growth. Uh, and and be grateful for the areas for the growth that we have done and and help me uh, manage where we can improve. So this was a good paper. I agree. Yeah. All right. My number one pick is very uh, practitioner specific, practitioner oriented. Student Perceptions of Teachers' Corrective Feedback, Basic Psychological Needs, and Subjective Vitality, a Multi-Level Approach, from episode 57. That is my number one, because <clears throat> I may care about an evaluative mindset, I may care about students editing their work on a pretest, but my ability to change my students' behavior and relationship to concepts is entirely dependent on how I give corrective feedback in the classroom. And if they, if the way I give feedback in the classroom is not perceived by them to be sincere and useful, then it is, then everything I did before then was a waste of time. This is a critical teacher skill. If you read these 22 papers and ignore your responsibility to give effective, critical feedback, then you should choose a different profession. Because if they already know it and do it right, they don't need you and shouldn't be there. And if they don't, your ability to tell them that they are wrong and how to sh how they improve is literally your function. So this is my number one, because every other of the 21 papers are irrelevant if you cannot help students improve. That's interesting. So uh, I looked at this. This is a competitor for me. It's not on my podium, but it was a competitor for me. And what I liked about this was that it put feedback and specifically corrective feedback, so like constructive criticism within a uh, self-determination framework, within a motivational framework, because, because it's important for the reasons that you said. Yeah. But what I like about this paper was its relevance to so many parts of our lives within, but also beyond the classroom, right? This is something that comes up in academia and in peer review. This comes up in the workplace and my ability to uh, help my colleagues and help uh, those who report to me do their jobs and do them more effectively and finding a way to help them see what they need to do better in a way that does not undermine their sense of competency, 
linking corrective feedback to a growing sense of competency is such a centrally important skill to anyone who views themselves as a teacher or a mentor. And I don't think it's intuitive. I, I, I think it is something that we have to practice, that we have to be trained to do, because it is not, it's not in my natural inclination. This is bad. Fix it. Agreed. It's this not, is, that's not going to do it. Yeah. It's and so natural. learning how to point things out in a way that grows competency, I think foregrounds one of the most critical skills that makes teaching a profession. Being able to do it is a skill we have to grow. It is not something you walk in the door just naively knowing how to do. And so I propose that if you only listen to one episode of our prior season, it should be episode 57. So my number one is from episode 56 uh, and is called Standardizing Indigenous Erasure a tribal crit and quant crit analysis of K-12 U.S. civics and government standards. And this one was powerful for me because it taught me about some of the systems that I aspire to affect. This one overlapped with an area that I, I just like, right? I'm a science teacher with a social studies credential. And so I like having these conversations and it was an opportunity for me to do a lot of learning about the reality of the structures within which social studies teachers work. And it taught me a lot about the implementation of crit frameworks, quant crit in particular, in this paper, because that's a methodology that I'm developing competency and using in my own research. And so it was valuable to me in so many different ways, because their methods were methods I wanted to learn about. And the topic is a topic I want to learn about. And it's actionable because I want to advocate for the indigenous nations in the areas where I live. It was an opportunity for me to continue practicing land acknowledgements in a way that disrupt erasure while also resisting complacency. And so that, that land acknowledgement blog post that I wrote to accompany this episode, I've had the opportunity to use and share more than twice as I have conversations about where, how, and why I do land acknowledgements just in my general practice. If you're a practicing teacher and your social studies standards allow a lot of curricular freedom, then you can immediately exercise your professional autonomy and freedom to incorporate the acknowledgement of indigenous nations in any social concept that you're attempting to explore, that you are free to do that. However, if you are on the flip side of the coin and your curriculum is very, very prescribed, specific, mapped, calendared, and standardized in terms of assessment, then you as a teacher have little freedom, or at least you are warranted little freedom, to exercise your right to add and acknowledge the indigenous nations and their influence on our current world as examples in this discussion of social interactions. You know, the humanistic should that we should, we should acknowledge the autonomy of people and the autonomy of nations 
is, I you know, I, I don't think there are going to be very many people that disagree with that. So we can accept that. But our ability as practitioners to influence that and exercise that is often uh, determined by the environment in which we teach, the culture in which we teach, the, the culture of the district, the department, the school in which we teach. That kind of connects to some of my runners-up. One of my runners-up was within the walls of the classroom, how science teachers' instruction can develop students' sociopolitical consciousness. And I think that that relates to your number one directly. Social studies teachers have opportunities to develop the sociopolitical consciousness of students, and they can do so acknowledging uh, indigenous nations uh, in our spaces before now and, and now. Both of those. Uh, and then this, this, there's a science teacher corollary in the sense that how we perceive science publicly uh, matters sociopolitically. How we discuss it. We can use our classroom and, and, the, and the, the content of science to discuss diversity of cultures on the planet, diversity of available resources, diversity of agency of different demographics and different places and different cultures. We can have those discussions when we're talking about science because science is about how the natural world works and that is perceived through the lens of individual and cultural experience. So those two papers have some similarities in the sense that they're about how have the humans been affected by these circumstances? And the circumstance could be the laws of gravity, or the circumstance could be col col colonialism. But people have been affected by these things. Uh, and so that episode 64 paper was one of my runners up. Make better mistakes. For our second segment, we're going to reflect again, this time thinking about the most noteworthy elements of your teaching practice this year and why. We like to say on this show, and I like to say in my professional heart, teach your students where they are at. And my ninth graders specifically, it was true of my college biology students as well, but my ninth graders specifically we're not at where incoming ninth graders typically are at. They weren't even proximal to where my ninth graders were typically at. And, and I don't mean that in terms necessarily of cognitive skill. I don't. I think they could read like ninth graders could read. I think that they could write like ninth graders could write. But they were not so school socialized like ninth graders were school socialized. And that's very understandable. Everyone listening to this podcast can understand why the past years have not prepared them to for a ninth grade socialization. That's not a mystery. So then when I have these protocols in my classroom that are about, that have been tailored after nine years of practice to have expectations of what ninth graders are socially like. And then I have social regulation. I have these rules in my classroom about social regulation for what ninth graders are like. And then I get a, like a major group of kids 
it's not like one class is weird and the others are normal. No, across the board, they're not acting the way I anticipate. I really have to double down on the axiom of teaching them where they're at. Uh, their academic skills were basically like ninth graders, but their socialization was not like ninth graders. And so we needed to spend some time changing my construct for practicing socialization so that we could finally, by fourth quarter, get them to where I needed them to be or where I expected them to be. And I did. I did get them in fourth quarter where I needed them to be, but that was only after third quarter concentrating on how do we interact with each other in a classroom and having explicit instruction about how to interact with each other in the classroom. And when I did that, we got to where I wanted to be. Answering this question was hard for me and actually led me to what was the last thing that I wrote, but is the truest thing that I can say, which is that I miss teaching. But things are starting to happen again that haven't been happening for a couple of years. I had the opportunity to work with classes of teachers. I had the opportunity to work with classes of students. And I especially remember the first time I had a full class. We had a full house in the classroom at the location where I work. And we had educators in and they were there for a professional development day. And it was my job to do the first couple hours before we were out in the field. And, and so they come in and we're, we're starting to work together. And I'll tell you what, it didn't take 90 seconds. And I felt like Mickey at the beginning of Fantasia where there's just this like ordinary classroom. And I walk in and I'm like, let's, let's go, let's do it. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, yeah. And we went and we went together and they were insightful and they were creative and they were energetic. And I was excited to be any part of it. And it was dynamic and it was great. It was great. And I was like, oh my gosh, I... I used to do this a lot and I am sad that I don't do it as much as I used to and I want to be doing it more. And so my research methodology has really developed over the last year and I've been in relationships with teachers and I've had teaching opportunities. That's what I show up to do is let's talk about how you can have a share in these things that I love. As a teacher, I recognize that I'm a few years out of the classroom now and I'm doing everything that I can to stay in relationship with teachers, you included, Lawrence. Yay. But it's not the same thing as teaching. One of the most noteworthy elements or developments uh, is I am noticing the distance I have from teacher. And I'm thinking about it. We're in this together. So for our third segment, we are now doing reflection, but in the broadest possible sense, think about what were the most noteworthy elements of your personal life this year and why. And I acknowledge out of the gate, this is a little bit of a consumerist observation um, that is electrification. I have been moving aggressively to greater electrification of my life in the last year. Uh, we made the switch uh, around Christmas to our first electric vehicle as a family. And that was a lark 
kind of like we wanted to have an electrified vehicle. We were pretty sure we could make it make sense financially. And I can't tell you why we actually did it. Uh, it was one of those things that people sit around and talk about for years and years. And we just, for whatever reason, didn't, we just did lasers and gentle beings. I tell you this electric car was phenomenal. The joy that I get from looking at my charge history and discovering that I have spent $1 to power this vehicle for the entire last month feels wonderful. It feels so good, especially like with the spiking gas prices, but even still our public charging infrastructure is great around here. So we are like, this is the best. This is all I want in my life. So we are trying to sell our other gas powered vehicle to get a second EV. I'm in the process of selling my motorcycle, drive my electric vehicles. I have an electric powered skateboard that I really like to go on. So in, uh, I'm glad you started with electrification because I also have a story about significant in late April, I acquired a, I purchased a, um, electric bicycle and it has changed my life when i was in my 20s i, I did hapkido uh, hapkido is a martial arts that was some exercise people and in my uh and then i moved away from that location i went to graduate school i got a job i stopped doing it well since april i've put 140 miles on my electric bike that's that's basically 50 miles a month uh, of bicycling, and I feel great, and I am excited about it. And it's it's uh, it's something that I push myself. Like I, I say, hey, I went this far last time. Let's go a little bit farther this time, and I just keep incrementally get better. And I think that's that that appeal of uh, of of going a little bit farther, of of, of of biking a little bit longer, like. PRing just a little bit when you go out, you hit that personal record. I have thoroughly been enjoying that experience. Now we do other stuff. I think we're at How's the Beer? So my beer of the my my beer of the year, my mug of honor, which was a difficult choice because this was a difficult year for me. There were many beers I didn't really enjoy this year. My choice is going to be the Raven Imperial Stout from Sandpiper Brewing. This was from episode 60. I like Imperial Stouts, and this was one of the few Imperials that we drank on our list this year. That beer caused me the most joy. So before I go into my number one, I'd like to go to my notable, most notable beer. The most notable beer... The most notable beer was the Shiner Candied Pecan Porter. <laughs> because as far as good as the beers that I liked were, the Shan the Shiner Candied Pecan Porter was way worse. Like on a scale of zero to ten, where ten being the best beer imaginable by humans, I would say the best beer we had this year was maybe a four. But the worst beer we had was maybe a negative twenty. Like, let me tell you about one beer from this year, and I would tell you about the Shiner Candy Porter. Yes. Immediately. It was so bad. <laughs> Do not have the Shiner Candy Pecan Porter. It's no good. It's the worst. But New Holland's Dragon's Milk Solera was my number one. Because during that tasting, 
I said, I, I taste something like raisin or prune. And in the end, it was brewed with fig. And I just felt so proud of myself for exhibiting the skill of being able to identify the hints and notes in a beer that I will never forget that I did that. And it brings me the greatest joy. It has been quite a year. And so I hope that this podcast is useful. I hope that it's enjoyable. I hope that you feel seen and supported. I hope that this show can play a role in that. And we're going to be here for, I don't know, at least another month. I want to give a thanks to Four Lights Web Development for maintaining our web presence at twopintplc.com. And I'd like to give a thanks to DD Riot, uh, our DJ who mixed our uh, episodic music from segment to segment. And finally, we want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.